you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. We're listening to the opening music to David Lynch's Blue Velvet from 1986 and the score of Angelo Badalamenti, who passed away earlier this week at the age of 85. This film represented the start of a 30-year collaboration between Lynch and Badalamenti, which included so many different works on both film and television. Joining me this week are critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series, Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with Avatar, The Way of Water from writer-director James Cameron. Christy, how many years has it been since the original? It has been 13 years. We are back on Pandora. We are in the forests and in the oceans and all over this planet, sun planet, whatever it is. Um, so now Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, is like a full-on Navi. Before he was a human in the Avatar world. Now he is among them all the time. He and Natiri, played by Zoe Saldana, have several children who are all scampering about. And they've also taken on another child, a teenage girl named Kitty, who is... Sort of the spawn of Sigourney Weaver's character. Anyway, there's more to that that I will not give away. So um, they are in the forests of Pandora, but the quote-unquote sky people, the humans, have come back to finish what they started, right? They were trounced and sent back to Earth in the first film. They come back, and they're all also in full-on Navi bodies, led by Stephen Lang's character. He is once again back to uh, be swaggering and deliver, you know, masculine one-liners. So they then must find a new place to live. So they, they travel to the reef place where it's all oceany and people are underwater instead of in the air. It's essentially the same movie as Avatar all over again. It's just it's underwater instead of in the air. So the kinds of creatures that you saw in the first Avatar that were majestic and colorful and flying now the same kinds of creatures exist underwater like the big purple tree of life thing in the first film is now like an underwater purple tree of life um what james cameron has done here is played with frame rate right so it's in 3d it's spectacular to look at of course he does not mess around and one one really great thing about him in general is that he's constantly pushing technology he wants to see how far he can go you know with the use of of, of 3d um underwater really is a, a great place for him he's done so many great documentaries that have like brought the technology forward in terms of, of camera work and that kind of thing and so it looks fantastic but quite frequently for the big action sequences 
it goes to a higher frame rate. It's 48 frames per second. And it is so jarring. And it is so distancing because, which is not what he intends. He intends quite the opposite. Is that that super smooth look that you get when you go to that high frame rate? Yes. And so, you know, usually film is in 24 frames per second. This is doubling that. And so it's, it is that much sharper, that much crisper, but the human eye doesn't see things like that. It's like when you go to Costco and they have all those big TV monitors at the front before you go back toward the wine and the pastries. It's like that. And it's, it's so, it's so sharp that, and he goes back and forth between it in a way that is disconcerting and it's intended to make it more immediate, more accessible, but actually has quite the opposite effect. It's a little distancing. Um, it is all of three hours long and then some. It is a journey. It takes a whole long time to get started. But the middle section, when things are happening underwater, where they're discovering different creatures and finding their place within this world and trying to you know, fend off the attackers, a lot of it is quite thrilling. But a lot of it is just way too long and way too repetitive. If you love his films, if you just want to go for the escape of the spectacle, you will be in awe. Um, Kate Winslet is very good in this. She returns to the James Cameron water world. And the whole last third of it is like Titanic in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, she's really acting. Zoe Saldana is really acting. And yet you don't go to James Cameron movies for the screenplay. You don't go for the dialogue. And so the... <laughs> Definitely not. Right. The, the teenagers here in both of the, the Jake Sully family and the Water Tribe will address one another as like, dude, bro, sup, whoa. And it's like, it's so weird in this completely unique, specific transporting world to have these dude bros talking to one another like middle schoolers. Anyway, I like a lot about it. It must be seen. <laughs> Avatar, the way of water, Peter. Uh, thanks, Christy, for parsing all that plot. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I I, I think uh, I deliberately didn't see the first one again before I saw this because I thought, well, I'm going to sort of come to this as fresh as I can. I wasn't totally uh, lucid on the first uh, one's plot either. Um, yes, the best parts of this movie uh, are the middle section um, with the underwater stuff, which is just really... Uh, I mean, literally immersive. Um, I was watching with those bulky 3D glasses, which probably uh, isn't the best way to do it, but, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And it really, uh, it's really transporting and immersive and all those wonderful words. And um, uh, the, the problem is that, you know, even though I think this has a real kind of corny, uh, ardent grandeur to it, this whole movie, um, there is a, you know, a disconnect between the the often really startling phantasmagorical visuals and the and the dialogue and the the way people speak um you know it's just uh it's really pulls apart and um you know sometimes it's sort of uh you know i was you know in wisecrack mode like when a voiceover says the way of water has no beginning and no end and i you know i wondered what a plumber might make of that uh a little tidbit. Um, the thing is, you have to admire, in a sense, that Cameron is, um, uh, with the possible exception of George Lucas, who farmed out his franchise pretty early on. Um, I don't know any director who's really had the clout, you know, or the chutzpah to, to play out his adolescent fantasies on, on, on such a grand scale. Um, and you know, I mean, it, there, there's, and he's. This is only the 
there are going to be three more movies, apparently, uh, I guess, um, weather permitting. Um, and I suppose by the fifth one, uh, audiences will be watching uh, watching it wearing virtual reality helmets on Mars. Um, but 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 Cameron really does, you know, when he hits the water, uh, it it really it, it means something. You know, this is a guy after all who who did a record-breaking solo dive and remember in 2012 to Earth's lowest point. It was part of the National Geographic documentary uh, James Cameron's Deep Sea Challenge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he the guy loves water, and, and the best parts of this movie are very watery. Avatar, The Way of Water, directed by James Cameron, who co-wrote it with Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. Uh, did either of you see it in IMAX format? No, saw it in 3D, but not IMAX. Okay, all right. Um, the new film from Mexican writer-director Alejandro Iñárritu is Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, a comedic drama. Uh, Peter, what did you think of Bardo? I, I, liked, I liked a lot of it. it. It got a bad rap when it played at the Venice Festival. It was almost three hours, I believe, and, and it was cut by about 20, 25 minutes uh, for the version that we have. Um, it's it's about a, a Mexican journalist, uh, Silverio, uh, played by Daniel Jimenez Cacho, who um, has lived with his uh, wife and very Americanized children in uh, Los Angeles uh, for years, but returns to Mexico. He's um, about to get a uh, an important uh, literary prize um, from in, in in America, the first Latin American to to, to get it. So he. He's back in Mexico, and uh, the film is based on, um, uh, in, in some ways, on Eight and a Half, uh, the game plan that Fellini had, also All That Jazz, the Bob Fosse's film, uh, about directors who ruminate over their lives, and there's a kind of stream-of-consciousness fantasia aspect to the way they perceive their, their life, past, present, and future. Um, this film... Uh, despite all of the sort of phantasmagorical stream of consciousness aspects to it, uh, I thought it had in places a real emotional uh, weight. Um, the um, Mexican journalist Silverio, uh, who's played by uh, Daniel Jimenez Cacho, is um, uh, an unruly guy who, who is trying to make peace with uh, the fact that he left Mexico and all of the resentments that people have that he left and and all of the, the things that go on there that that uh, relate to mexican history there's a fantasy scene where he he encounters uh, hernando cortez and a pile of dead indigenous mexicans it's all sorts of weird stuff but somehow it all comes together uh as long as and sometimes as wearying as the film is um there's a, a wonderful scene with um silverio encountering his his uh, dead father um which is, I thought, quite moving. Uh, and the, the children, uh, his uh, son and daughter, very Americanized kids, I, I thought the relationship between um, uh, Silverio and them was, was quite realistic. Most times in movies when you see uh, father-children scenes, uh, it just looks like they're actors, but this seemed to really have uh, some emotional connection. Um, the problem with the movie overall is that I think it goes a little bit too far off the rails uh, it's self-indulgent, but you know you could say the same thing about um, uh, Armageddon Time or The Fablemans or Eight and a Half, for that matter. I was going to say the earlier movies you mentioned got got uh, you know that was said about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think unfairly so. I mean, look, that's that's what uh, 
the director has a right to to go into his life and his past in such ways that you know if if, if something valid comes out of it, something emotionally valid comes out of it, then I think you know to, to label something self-indulgent is 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 pretty uh, pretty facile. And there's some funny satirical things in it too. You know, Amazon apparently is buying Baja California. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, overall, I think it's it's it's. Very uneven, but the emotional parts, uh, I think, really uh, sell it. We're talking about Bardo, false chronicle of a handful of truths from writer-director Alejandro Iñárritu Christie. Yes, not unlike the Avatar sequel, it is stunningly beautiful, but also overlong and gets a little repetitive. So, yeah, I'm actually a fan of Iñárritu, and not everybody is. And um, the stuff that he does so well, the really like virtuoso camera work and just the, the the language of it and the way he'll carry you along through a scene is just is transporting and it's engaging. And I, I love Birdman. Like I like the show off. Right. I like the show off part of him. There are some very long tracking shots in here and they don't feel wedged in for the sake of ha ha look at me look what I can do like it's part of how surreal this character's journey is and so there's one long one in particular where he's going through a TV studio in Mexico City and then like down a hallway and through a rehearsal room where all these dancers with feathers and sequins are working on their their act and then down another hall and into a makeup room and then it's a whole conversation but that is totally relevant to what is happening inside of his story so um there were moments that really, really worked for me, and then others that I thought were, like, there was an oppressiveness to the magical realism of them. Like, they're incessant and feel wedged in. There is some very graphic stuff involving a, a childbirth that really is very, very off-putting, and they come back to it a couple different times. But then there's a, a sadness to that element of the story as well. The thing that Peter referenced with him meeting up with his father in the the restroom might have been a really poignant moment, but there's something that they do where, like, the actor, Cacho's, like, grown adult-sized head is on a tiny person's body. <laughs> and, I mean, it's intentionally meant to be shocking, but it took me out of the emotion of that moment. Like, make it a little kid version of yourself and, like, let us feel what that feels like to see your father again once more. Um, I liked a lot about it. And Darius Kanji shot it. It's very beautiful. There's a whole segment that takes place on the L.A. Metro, on the Expo line. You hear ding, ding. You know, so it's sort of a cool L.A. tie to that here. Um, but this is very much an Inyaritu stand-in. The actor looks like him. He's going to get this big award, which feels like a parallel to the Oscars that the director himself has won. And there's this whole contentious thing with a critic. And it's like him in a very meta way addressing his own criticisms and yet wallowing in all of those at the same time. So not for everyone. <laughs> Bardo, false chronicle of a handful of truths from director Alejandro Iñárritu. He co-wrote it with Nicholas Giacobone. The film's rated R at the landmark Westwood and the Bay Theater and Pacific Palisades streaming on Netflix. More to come on Film Week. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. You're listening to the arrangement of uh, the song Blue Velvet for the film by David Lynch, Blue Velvet, uh, by Angelo Badalamente, the composer who died earlier this week at the age of 85. That's Isabella Rossellini singing the song. We're listening to uh, music with each of our intros to segments on Film Week, uh, as well as uh, going to the breaks with his music. Our Film Week critics today are Charles Solomon, Peter Rayner, and Christy Lemire. Next up is the Irish film The Quiet Girl. Uh, Cullum Barade is the director and screenwriter of the film. Christy, please tell us about The Quiet Girl. Extremely lovely and gentle and rewards your patience and your attention. You really need to lean in because it is a quiet film, as the title would suggest. It's about a young girl, maybe she's a 12-year-old girl, um, played by Catherine Clinch, who is the quiet girl. She's the titular quiet girl. It's, it's Ireland, 1981. She lives on a farm where she's just pretty much totally neglected. She is one of several children. Her mother is pregnant again. Her father is this degenerate alcoholic gambler. And she needs to try to find her place within this world where like no one's looking out for her and there's no care for her whatsoever. Some distant cousins, some relatives of her mother, agree to take her for the summer. They just like they just can't deal with her. She's she runs off. She's trouble. They don't have the time to understand her. But in this new setting with this older couple who don't have a child of their own, um, she blossoms subtly, steadily, quietly, but in her own way. And uh, and with some love and care, like this, this flower that had been neglected blooms. And it's so much about the textures and the understated pacing and the glances in the rearview mirror and the the cozy sweaters and the tea and and you know people sitting around smoking cigarettes and playing cards and giving each other a, a hard time like it's a very vivid sense of place here um, and it's achingly sad but in very understated mellow ways until the absolute last couple of moments where it's just like torrential sobbing. <laughs> But I I really loved it. This is this is Ireland's entry in the Oscars for Best International Film, and um, there's just there's nothing showy about it. But it comes by its its emotions honestly, and you really go on this journey with this young woman, and this this couple that she's staying with for the summer. It's, it's one of those summer that changed everything movies, but in in very lovely ways. And I see it's in Gaelic with English subtitles. Yes, it, it I think there are subtitles the whole way through. Uh, the film, again, Ireland's entry for Best International Feature for the Oscars. Peter, what did you think of The Quiet Girl? 
Well, you know some of those war movies where they're moving through the woods and they say it's real quiet, and the other guy says, yeah, too, too quiet. quiet yeah. Uh, that's sort of how I felt about The Quiet Girl. Um, I liked it, but, but I, I just think it's it's too quiet. Um, it's, not, it's not just the girl that's quiet. It's, it's the adoptive family, you know, the, uh, the cousins uh, also uh, don't have a whole lot to say. Um, a lot of this is sort of supposed to be subtle and nuanced and, but you know, I thought Catherine Clinch, who played um, the uh, the quiet girl, uh, was was too quiet. Uh, again, I mean, I think that that there isn't enough there to really, for me, show her blossoming. I know what they intended, but it just seemed like a lot of the time uh, there was a certain blankness to her affect that that um, it didn't wasn't terribly expressive. Um, the uh, the woman who plays, you know, her mother's cousin, I think, is much more um, uh, empathic in this film. And there's some wonderful scenes, you know, where she's brushing the girl's hair, and you can see the kinds of things that that um, you know the girl's just unaccustomed to in her former life. And that's all very lovely. Um, uh, but I do think that the film suffers from sort of being, you know, a little bit too careful about not uh, touching all of the sentimental. Uh, buttons that normally happen in a story like this, and um, but it's it's very interesting to hear the Gaelic uh, spoken. You know, I, I don't know too many other films I've ever seen that that are entirely in Gaelic. The Quiet Girl, again from uh, writer-director Cullen Barraid. The film is unrated. It's at the AMC Sunset in West Hollywood. The animated French family film Little Nicholas, Happy as Can Be, is set in Paris in the 1960s. Charles, what would you think? Well, this is probably my favorite film of the year. It won first prize at Annecy and at Animation is Film, and it is just utterly charming and warm and funny and interesting. In 1956, uh, René Goscinny, who created Asterix and Lucky Luke and a lot of other important uh, French and Belgian comics, and Jean-Jacques Sampé, the cartoonist illustrator, started a comic strip about a little uh, bourgeois Parisian boy named Nicolas, or Nicolas. And it was hugely popular. It turned into graphic novels and to illustrated books that have been popular for decades. And they've taken... Uh, this the Nicholas character and use him to tell not only some of the stories but the friendship and relationship that developed between Gosseni and Sampe. I did not know, for example, that Gosseni's family was Jewish and they survived because his father was working as a chemical engineer in Buenos Aires in the 30s. So when France was occupied, they escaped. His uncles did not. And it's all told with great taste, great gentleness. It's done in the style of Sampe's cartoons, which listeners will know from all his New Yorker covers. It revels in being drawn. Uh, as I said, it's warm and charming and an absolute delight. And I, I was just absolutely enchanted by it. Little Nicholas Happy as can be. Charles, do you mind pronouncing the names of the two directors of the film? You'll do it much better than me. Oh, okay. It's... Uh, Amandine Fredon and Benjamin uh, Mosubra. I think he did uh, I Lost My Body. Right. Uh, I might be mistaken on that, but I, I think he did. Which was a critic's so, favorite, yeah. Yeah, a real change in pace for him, but again, just such a lovely film. The film is unrated. Little Nicholas, happy as can be. It's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. 
Who Killed Santa? A Murderville Murder Mystery, directed by Laura Murphy, written by Owen Burke, Marina Kockenberg, and Kerry O'Neill. Stars Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, and Maya Rudolph. Peter. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Um, this is part of a uh, ongoing series with um, uh, Will Arnett playing homicide detective Terry Seattle. And uh, the, the, the premise of these shows is that um, uh, several guest uh, actors uh, are in the, in the movie, but they don't know what the script is. So they're kind of put into a situation and they have no idea really where it's going or what they just have to solve the mystery. Um, that is presented to them. In this case, who killed Santa? Uh, apparently, um, uh, so Jason Bateman is is the the, uh, the homicide detective trainee, and then Maya Rudolph is is brought in as well uh, sometime later uh, to help solve this mystery. Uh, the mayor um, wants to uh, have a uh, uh, some uh, police protection uh, for a party that she's throwing. Um, at City Hall, uh, where Santa is is, is murdered by um, uh, a, a candy cane is is uh, piercing his heart, um, so they have to figure out who done it. And um, the fun of this series is that uh, the, the the two uh, guest celebrities have no idea what's going on for real, and so they have wow. to sort of improvise on the spot. And um, they're very good at it, you know, as you can imagine. Jason Bateman is always really funny, and Maya Rudolph is terrific. And some other people show up, a uh, guest person from Saturday Night Live that I won't give away. Um, but it, it's all sort of in the vein of some of the Christopher Guest uh, improv comedies and Saturday Night Live sketches. Uh, and it's only an hour, so even when stuff doesn't quite work, you know that something good is going to come next. Who Killed Santa? A Murderville Murder Mystery. Christy? It's not even an hour. It's like 52 minutes. The perfect length for everything. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really funny and really silly, but like, given the improv structure of it, it's kind of hit and miss. Um, but what is a blast is watching people who are so good at what they do play off of each other and watching their realization as it's going along of what they have gotten themselves into. So Jason Bateman is there first, and then Maya Rudolph gets brought in. The mayor is like, I brought more back up and like Maya Rudolph comes out and she's like hey like she has no idea who's going to be there or what's going to happen and uh, when they bring her up to speed and they say you know well Santa's been killed she's like really seriously and she's legitimately laughing because it just sounds ridiculous and they're like no really Santa's been killed um, Will Arnett and Jason Bateman of course have this fantastic long time chemistry with each other they were on Arrested Development together for many years and so you get a sense that this is a lot of old friends playing around, playing off each other. Will Arnett often will orchestrate the improv sessions and tell them, okay, you do this now and you do this. And watching them on the fly shift gears just shows you how good they are at this, how hard this is, how hard it is to do it well. And then part of the fun, of course, like a lot of Saturday Night Live skits, is they break character. Like, they try so hard not to giggle, but uh, they do. It looks really chintzy, but doesn't matter because you have uh, a lot of folks whose work you enjoy having a good time together.
Who Killed Santa, a Murderville murder mystery directed by Laura Murphy, rated TVMA streaming on Netflix. The 1984 Iranian film from writer-director Amir Naderi, The Runner, has been newly restored and new subtitles done for it. It's in two of the Lemley theaters. Christy, please tell us about why we need to see The Runner. It is excellent. I had never seen this film before, and I guess it's sort of little seen outside of Iran for a long time, and now there is this restoration of it that's available. And um, it is just joyous. It is is tactile and gritty and vivid, but it's also so much fun. And it's like the the joy and vibrancy of filmmaking just leaps off the screen. Um, It's about this 11-year-old orphan played by Majid Nuramond. And he has this fantastic face. He's just such a natural, this kid. The director found him on like a magazine cover and cast him from that. And he's such a natural. He's this sort of scruffy little ragamuffin orphan child making his way through uh, this, this port town in Iran, shining shoes and gathering bottles for loose change. And he's determined. He's a tough little kid because... He's orphaned, and he lives alone, and he's made his way in the world, and people are mean to him. Kids and adults are all mean to him. It's got a lot of Italian neorealism to it, and it's also got a lot of French New Wave to it. There's a lot of the, like, the 400 blows in the, like, the no-nonsense of it. Like, living on the streets is hard. But this kid is illiterate, and he has a dream of making something for himself, and he wants to like learn to read so he can get on a plane and get out. And... He is so joyous. Like, in the face of everything, he has the most adorable little smile, which sounds like it's trickly. It's not. Like, this is a a tough movie, but um, I was so entranced by it. Really long tracking shots that really put you in in this place, a vivid sense of of, of time and place. And what you should know is that the the young actor, this young child star, lives here in Orange County. He is the vice president of student affairs at Orange Coast College. That's great. I was going to say, he's around 50 now. <laughs> right. So. He's like my age, and he's around, and uh, he only did a couple of movies, but like he just had that thing, that magnetic thing, and uh, this is really, really worth seeking out. I wonder what it's like for him now, having people here in Southern right? California able to see this film he did when he was 11. He's doing some interviews and some Q&As, so he'll be out yeah. there talking about it, I hope. That's great. <laughs> uh, the film is The Runner from 1984, Iranian film, directed and co-written by Amir Naderi, starring Majid Nirumand. The film is unrated. It's in Farsi with English subtitles. You can see it at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. and Lemley's Town Center in Encino. Um, we have just uh, a brief moment here uh, before we uh, conclude the segment. Peter, can you give us just a couple paragraphs on the documentary The Volcano Rescue from Fakari? Yeah, this is um, uh, Rory Kennedy, the director, had read an article in Outside Magazine about the uh, uh, December 2009 eruption of uh, one of the biggest active volcanoes in the world in New Zealand. And uh, the tourists uh, who were there at the time, 22 of them died. Um, it's it's a recounting uh, with uh, much footage from the time of people, even on the ground, tourists who had cell phones and the rescue missions uh, of, of, of the whole process. It's... Um, it's a powerful movie because it, it talks to a lot of the people who survived um, in, in, in somewhat graphic detail uh, about what happened. Regardless of what you think uh, they should have been there or not, 
um, the the momentousness of seeing the uh, the actual explosion and the feeling of being there and the ash and the heat and the steam and all of that uh, just coming on you suddenly in a minute um, is is really brought home and in, 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 you know very powerfully. Uh, it's a very scary movie and not for everybody, and some of it's right. hard to watch. The Volcano Rescue from Fakari, uh, Rory Kennedy, the director, is streaming on Netflix and also at the Bay Theater and Pacific Palisades. It's Film Week on KPCC, and we leave you in this segment with Laura Palmer's theme from Twin Peaks as we remember composer Angelo Badalamenti, who died earlier this week at 85. Two hundred seventy-four newly built units have sat empty for more than sixty days. I'm Nick Gerda. In my news stories on homelessness, I follow the money, hold officials accountable, and tell you which policies are working, which are not, and how that affects people here in Southern California. I'm proud my reporting for LAist helped fast-track VA housing for veterans in West LA and forced an accounting of millions of taxpayer dollars in Orange County. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. You know, there have been almost an infinite number of books that have been written about Hollywood, but typically there are people who've had to go back and and mine Hollywood from what's on screen and archived uh, magazine articles, newspaper stories and the like to piece together the history of Hollywood. But we have a brand new book that's been co-written by Janine Bassinger and Sam Wasson, which gives us the evolution of Hollywood in the words of those who actually were in the business, not just stars, but directors, uh, people who worked in all kinds of different crafts and important jobs within the film industry. All of this coming from uh, the uh, interviews that were done and student appearances uh, for the American Film Institute. Hollywood, the Oral History is the book that's resulted in joining us is co-author, historian Sam Wasson. Sam, so good to have you with us again on Film Week. Thank you, Larry. That was a perfect introduction. I should be interviewing you. <laughs> well, let's talk about the advantage of hearing people who were there. Uh, Lillian Gish talking about what making silent action adventure films were like, for example. What do you get in their words that is hard to get otherwise? Well, you can't argue with it. You know, I mean, how how do you contradict uh, the testimony of uh, eyewitness accounts, um, especially when those eyewitness accounts start to echo each other, um, which isn't to say everyone sees everything uh, in exactly the same way, but pretty much a consensus starts to emerge. And as a historian, uh, a lover of truth, um, that's an absolute 
gift. I mean, this discovery, which it was, of these of these uh, basically un unknown interviews, was 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 thrilling for me for that very reason. And, and because with th this with this information, we can now say this is Hollywood. This is it. Finally, where where did these interviews? Uh, how were they unearthed? And are most of these presentations to students or, you know, what do they consist of? These are recorded seminars that the AFI has been holding for 50 years, basically, since its inception. Um, and they are available at the American Film Institute to researchers, but the AFI um, hadn't transcribed all of them. Um, hadn't organized all of them, had lost some of them, um, and certainly hadn't publicized them um, to the degree that they deserve to be. So when I walked in and saw these literally 4,000 interviews, some of which are as long as two hours, I went, oh my God, this is the history of Hollywood. They're all here. We're talking with the co-author of Hollywood, The Oral History, Sam Wasson, with us on Film Week. So, Sam, I'm particularly interested, because they're they're no longer with us, to to share this knowledge. The people in the in the early uh, Hollywood years and share with us what they said about the limitations of the technology and you know beyond just sound, of course, and how that affected the way that they shot films and even the locations they chose. Well, they were making it up. I mean, you have to remember, uh, uh, and, and it's hard to imagine, there was a time before there was a movie business. This was new technology, the moving picture. So what do you do with it? We we take it for granted now that a, a movie camera makes a movie, but this was just this thing. What is a movie? Uh, how do you make a movie? Is it two hours? Is it 10 minutes? Uh, do you shoot it inside? Do you shoot it outside? Do you move the camera? Um, are these original stories? Are they based on plays? You know, what is this thing? And so the early pioneers um, were really making it up as they went along. And it gave them incredible freedom, incredible creativity, and really a lot of fun. And what you get from the, the early part of this book that was so thrilling to me was uh, people saying we were just having the time of our life, figuring out what this thing was. And and I'm sure seeing this industry and this town of Hollywood grow up around it, it yes. must have been amazing to see just the huge numbers of people arriving from all around the country and around the world because it was so hungry for people to work and to see the employment machine of Hollywood grow in those early years. Yes, it is an L.A. story. I mean, the Hollywood story, obviously. I mean, but but what few people remember was that this was a baby this was a baby community, Hollywood. And I mean, literally Hollywood, you know, um, the area right by the valley at Cahuenga, um, uh on this side of the hill uh, was was citrus trees and, uh, um, you know, um, dirt roads. It was a it was really a farm town and um, sort of puritanical. Yeah, no and booze, right? In early Hollywood. No booze, exactly. And so when movie people came in and they called them the movies that was actually the term to describe the people who made the movies they were called the movies i didn't know and, that 
these people were looked on as, you know, kind of nutty. They they were always blocking traffic, running around in their costumes, working at night, sleeping in the day, being theatrical, smuggling, you know, drinks in wherever they could. Um, so it, it kind of shook up the town. And it was only when Hollywood actually started becoming an industry that um, the the natives looked had to look on these movies as a, 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 a certain part of the community. They they then realized, well, they're not going anywhere. We have to learn to deal with these people. We're talking with film historian and co-author of Hollywood, The Oral History, Sam Wasson, joining us on Film Week. One of the things I'm always struck by in the early years of the industry, uh, Sam, is that you had uh, men and women who had lived lives doing other things. They didn't, they didn't you know, uh, grow up wanting to be a director, go to film school. Uh, they may have had military service. They may have traveled the country doing all kinds of highly physical and odd jobs. Um, they came from you know, often um, great deprivation economically. How did they talk about that informing what they did in making movies? Well, it was different for 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 everyone, um, but I think I think it's a large part of a, a large plays a large part in why their movies were so good that they actually could bring life experience expertise to this thing um, that they were making up, and uh, it also shows you how inclusive the movie business was. It had to be. It didn't know what it was. It took women. It took men. It took old people. It took young people. It took lawyers, teachers, designers. It was omnivorous in those early days. And and because film was relatively cheap, certainly compared to what it is now, it could creatively accommodate all the risk-taking and experimentation that went with the diversity of personality that was flooding into the business. All right, Sam, let's let's talk about some of the individual stories, um, particularly of the, let's take the, the early directors. Which one's like top of mind is just a great account of, of what we wouldn't have sensed about uh, either a production or Hollywood's early days? Which director? Yeah, which director would stand out to you? As representative of the yeah. early days, well, God, I mean, I, I, I don't think so much of the directors as I think of like the guys like Max Sennett, you know, the impresarios, or 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 Hal Roach, you know, these guys running these giant, these giant factories of of making movies. Um, those absolute early days, you know, it really wasn't so much about the director; um, it was just a about product and just producing this thing. Um, the concept of the director slowly started to creep in, you know, at, at the at the height of the silent era, um, when Hollywood started to gain some sense of awareness that there this was a storytelling technology, not just a recording technology, but that there was actually some obligation here on the part of an, of an intelligent mind to shape and build stories. We'll continue with film historian Sam Wasson, co-author of Hollywood, The Oral History, back with more on Film Week.
presentations by thousands of Hollywood greats and those who are lesser known have been made available now from the American Film Institute's archives. And the result is Hollywood, the oral history from Janine Bassinger and our guest Sam Wasson, the film historian, joining us here on Film Week to talk about uh, some of these these great recordings. Sam, just from the process standpoint, how in the world did you go through all of this? I mean, just given the the quantity of content, how did you determine what to focus on? Well, Janine and I, that that was our first task. I mean, like I said, there were four thousand, you know, and and you can you can eliminate some right off the bat. You know, you know who is important. You know who is talented. You know, you Janine and I, having done this for you know our professional lives, Janine certainly having done this far longer than I have, you know who the witnesses, the great witnesses are, you know who the great speakers are. And so you jump to them first. And then you start to ask yourself questions. Hey, wait a second. I I wonder if it would be interesting to hear from this guy or this girl. I wonder if there's anything behind this door. And it becomes sort of like Christmas every morning when you (laughs) open up these transcripts. You never know what you're going to find. I mean, sometimes you find something wonderful where you didn't expect it. Other times, you know, people who you think are going to deliver are complete duds. Um, Obviously, those people we don't put in the book. Yeah. But we just did this for this is what we did for two years, reading these things and picking out choice pieces that we felt told the stories, addressed the changing issues in Hollywood, addressed the changes in power. And after we built this, you know, after we had a real sense of, you know, what the arc of this thing was, which is a rise and fall story, um, we knew what the pieces that we needed were. And it just became a matter of of, uh, endurance, of trial and error until we actually got all of the pieces that we needed. Um, uh, that's the book. One of one of the directors who uh, recurs throughout is is Frank Capra, Caltech yeah. alum, um, and of course we're at the time of the year where it's a wonderful life is top of mind for people. But uh, director of a number of of tremendous films. What are some of the more interesting things that Capra had to say about movies? I'm so glad you picked out. Capra. He was a huge, huge source for us, um, in part because Capra was a great teacher uh, on on top of being a great filmmaker. But Capra was very thrilling um, to us um, in terms of describing the transition to sound. You know, as a Caltech graduate, he was scientifically and technologically inclined, Frank. So he was really well prepared to help Hollywood through this transition, which was a technological and scientific transition. So having Capra be one of our main voices to for that, that period was essential and, and such a gift. And I, I do think he's one of the stars uh, of the book for that reason, and certainly one of the stars of Hollywood history, just based, based upon how great the, the work was. Namely, It's a Wonderful Life, which is as great as any movie ever made, I think. Yeah, Billy Wilder, of course, known for being quite acerbic and funny, uh, didn't pull punches typically in interviews that that he gave. Was there anything surprising you found in uh, what Wilder had to say in these seminars? 
Well, I wasn't surprised by Billy because I know him so. I mean, I'm so I mean, I I'm such a Billy nut that I wasn't surprised by anything he said, but he certainly said hilarious things that I so, he's I had so funny. You know, he's just such a great company. Um which wasn't a surprise. It's just not a surprise to anyone who knows Billy. But what comes out of his mouth is just so delicious. And we had Billy, and of course we had uh, Izzy Diamond, one of his co-writers. We had them in the room together. So a lot of the Billy exchanges uh, are peppered with Izzy Diamond, which you know, for anyone who loves Wilder, is an added bonus. Uh, also, uh, we should talk about composers because uh, Elmer Bernstein, I believe, is is included, and and you have others here. Um, d- did any get to the issue of of um, some of the challenges, particularly if you work with a uh, you know a director over and over again? Um, sort of how that relationship unfolds over time. Yes, all, we, we that's a major issue. I mean, collaboration, of course, is a theme that runs throughout this book. This is this is an intensely collaborative art form. I mean, maybe the most collaborative art form uh, simply based upon the fact of how many, how, not just how many people are involved, but how many types of experts uh, how many types of expertise is required to make a movie? Of course, the composer and director is one of them. And, you know, one of the great surprises was Bronislaw Caper's testimony uh, is was so delightful and so informative on this subject. He was one of those guys that Janine and I, you know, we, of course, uh, revered him. But when we jumped into his testimony, we were just beside ourselves, you know, laughing. Um and he is a, a large part of the book, too. One of the heroes, definitely, of our composer section. You write about the end of the studio system, and, of course, it, it was exploitive of the people who worked in it, where the studios had all the control with its long-term contracts. Arguably, though, you know, the golden era of film, 30s and 40s, is under that system, and and great art could be created even with that exploitation. What did those in the system at the time, after it had transitioned out of those long-term contracts, what did they have to say about the studio system? Well, in terms of this exploitation, it actually was not an exploitative system. This is something that that we have have we've we've placed on the studio system. We've we've placed our ideas our of of what the studio system was on the reality, which was not exploitative insofar as people had the freedom to work at the top of their ability. Now, it's not to say, of course, that there weren't conflicts and Olivia de Havilland, you know, is quoted extensively and Betty Davis famously fought with Jack Warner, but these were outliers. Um, people got to do the work that they wanted to do and were well compensated for it. so that's one of the things that that this book actually is trying to correct is is to say um that's part of why it was a golden age. You know, people people don't do good work when they're unhappy, especially in the arts. And if you are like me, a fan of these great movies, it sh- it, it 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 should come as no surprise that people the people who made them were happy and proud to be making them. 
But there's another half of your question that I've lost. Well, now. Yeah, oh, that's all right. We're we're out of time, Sam. I want to thank oh. you so much for joining us. What a wonderful book and just so many terrific excerpts that are included in it. Hollywood, the oral history. Uh, our guest, Sam Wasson, Janine Bassinger, co- collaborating on the book. All these wonderful presentations given uh, over the course of decades at the American Film Institute, speaking uh, in the seminar format, sharing about the evolution of Hollywood. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. We appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend from all of us at Film Week. We remind you, if you came in late, you can hear the full hour wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.